Welcome to the show. Here's my dad. On this episode of the Infant Adoption Guide podcast, we talk about adopting with prenatal alcohol and drug exposure with Sarah from Bethany Christian Services. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Infant Adoption Guide podcast. My name is Tim Elder. I'm a dad of three through infant adoption, and this is the podcast all about domestic infant adoption. So if you're a faithful listener at first or your first time listening, I want to welcome you. Thank you again for joining me. We have fun on every episode and we learn a lot about infant adoption. And this episode is a special one because it's sponsored by Bethany Christian Services, Bethany is a full-service Christian nonprofit adoption agency with locations in 36 states. They've been helping families adopt since 1944, and they're going to help you create an adoption plan that's right for you and your family, and they'll be there to support you every step of the way because the journey doesn't end when your adoption is finalized. You know, Bethany offers post-adoption services, some of them we're going to talk about today, for families and adoptive parents and adoptees. So I invite you to check out some adoption stories and learn how you can get started at bethany.org forward slash infant adoption guide. All right, today we're talking about a very serious and an important subject that is adopting with prenatal alcohol and drug exposure. It's a big topic and we're going to try to cover as much as we can today. Our guest on the show is Sarah Horton Bobo, who's the director of post-adoption services at Bethany Christian Services. And you know what? You know, as hopeful adoptive families, you know, we're just increasingly faced with the decision of whether or not to adopt a child that has been exposed during pregnancy to either alcohol or drugs or both. And these drugs can be alcohol. Both are serious. I mean, the drugs, opiates, marijuana, prescription drugs, even tobacco can affect uh, a baby. Uh, prenatally. And so we know alcohol and drugs can damage the baby in a womb. And it's very important for us to just understand the risks, kind of wrap our brains around what that really means and the potential issues of these uh, substances, what they can do. And so, and what we can really accept in a situation, what we can handle in raising a child. So that's all we're going to cover today. Uh, Sarah does a great job. I know you're going to love the interview. Let's get into it right now. Okay. Welcome, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you? I am great. Fabulous. And I appreciate you coming on the show. This is going to be a kind of a hard topic, but a really extremely important one, I think. It seems like the drug and alcohol use is, is becoming more and more common. At least it seems that way when on Facebook groups and other places where we talk to hopeful adoptive families. And it's becoming more common that expect that women who are considering adoption for their baby, it's this the use is there. And uh, the struggle is for us families who are considering an adoption situation, it's hard to know if the baby has had any prenatal exposure to drug or drug or alcohol, and then even how much exposure they've had. So it's just important for us to be able to figure out and try to understand the risks involved. And that's what all this stuff we're going to cover today. So I appreciate you coming on the show. And I really, first of all, just wanted to ask if you'd share a bit about yourself and what you do in the adoption world. Yeah, I would be glad to and, you know, start by saying thank you for bringing attention to this issue. As you said, you know, it is something that we hear about, but, uh, you know, maybe doesn't get all of um, the same amount of of time and training that uh, families might get as they prepare for adoption in other areas. So I'm very happy to be able to do that Um, as, you know, a little bit of an introduction. 
to myself, I am the Director of Post Adoption Services for Bethany Christian Services. Um, I'm based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but I'm working with people um, all across the United States, primarily focused on Bethany Christian Services branches and how we can make sure that we have post-adoption support available to um, adoptive parents, to birth parents, and to people who've been adopted. Because we know, you know, that that journey of adoption, you know, only just starts at the actual process of, you know, of uh, the adoption being facilitated. It's really that lifelong um, experience of what it's like to be an adoptive family, what it's like to, you know, live having been adopted and um, or having placed your child for adoption. So we're, so my role is really broad in working on, on all of those areas. But the reason that I'm particularly glad to, to connect with you and to talk with your listeners is that my background before being at Bethany was as a consultant for the state of Michigan for their fetal alcohol spectrum disorders program. Um, I did that work for 14 years before I came to Bethany, worked very closely with families who had adopted children who had prenatal exposure to alcohol and other drugs, and just got really passionate about creating more services, helping with prevention, with bringing awareness to this issue. So it's something um, very close to my heart um, and something that I feel really passionate about. Well, I can tell, and that's great. You're the right person to come on the show and talk about this, and I'm, I'm happy to have you on. And so, But I wanted to ask you, you know, just given the, all the different substances that are being taken and often abused by expectant mothers, and we may not even know if they're being abused, but what should give us the most concern for the baby's health. Yeah. So there are, you know, so many different things that can happen during pregnancy that affect the, you know, the health of the baby and exposure to alcohol, to um, substances, you know, of abuse, to tobacco, to, you know, there's more and more attention around methamphetamine use and opioid addictions. And, you know, there's so many different things that, uh, prospective adoptive parent can, you know, try to wrap, you know, kind of their understanding around. And I would say broadly, you know, that these substances can all have an effect um, on a baby's well-being. And kind of universally, most of these substances, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, can affect uh, baby's growth um, in utero. um, And also they can be born small. There can be physical abnormalities that happen. Um, A lot of that is from first trimester exposure. So many women don't realize that they're pregnant if their lifestyle includes using drugs, you know, smoking, drinking, those, some of those physical abnormalities that can happen from that exposure might have been there before she even knew that she was pregnant. And so those are, you know, kind of things that happen um, through different kinds of exposures. Withdrawal from drugs is another thing that we'll, you know, see and, and you might hear, you know, a little bit more about, um, particularly with opioid addiction and uh, with heroin and methadone, those can all have some pretty significant withdrawal effects. So you'll notice, you know, babies shaking and tremoring and not being able to um, kind of filter out um, a lot of things. So they're irritable and 
upset. And so those, you know, different exposures to different substances kind of vary depending on on what it was. But I would say, you know, most significantly and what we know um, through research is that of all of those substances of abuse, that alcohol is the one that has the most significant long-term effects on learning and behavior. So that's where there there is a lot of research and, and you know, a lot of things um, to really think about. And sometimes that surprises people to realize that a substance that's legal could actually be more harmful to a baby than an illicit drug might be. So it's just, yeah, it's one that sometimes gets minimized, but is really an important one to pay attention to. Yeah, that is that is interesting to think about because, uh, yeah, I mean, alcohol has been around for a long time and some of these drugs that have been out there have not been around for that much. Uh, so it is, uh, maybe there will be more studies done in the future about uh, some of these other drugs that have been out there and how they affect uh, a baby uh, prenatally, but uh, so should we do, be just concerned about? I mean, take tobacco for instance. I mean, tobacco has been around forever too, and even marijuana has been around a long, long time. Should we be just as concerned about tobacco use or marijuana use as we are alcohol use? Or I guess you've already said maybe alcohol could be the most detrimental, right? Yeah, I would definitely, you know, say that um, of all of those drugs, if you are aware or have reason to believe that there was prenatal alcohol exposure, it's something that as a prospective adoptive parent or a new adoptive parent, you're going to want to research, you're going to want to understand about the other substances. It's, you know, not to take and say, oh, you know, well, you don't need to worry at all. I mean, there's definitely, you know, an evaluation process of, how much exposure was this? What, you know, what's the timing of that exposure and what effects might those have um, for a baby? Um, so tobacco is another good, you know, example of thinking that, again, is a legal substance um, and can have some pretty significant effects on the health um, of a developing baby. It's definitely linked to growth problems. So babies exposed to tobacco um, often are born smaller and, you know, they might catch up in, you know, in their development, but, you know, low birth weight babies and, and, you know, those kinds of um, risks that can happen from basically what's happening if you take both marijuana and tobacco is that the baby is getting a little bit less oxygen than it would without that exposure while it's developing. Um, so that lack of oxygen, you know, during development can result in the growth problems and, and some subtle effects um, are linked with, you know, uh, attention problems and some learning things. So there's definitely not to say there's, you know, the only drug to be concerned about is alcohol. But like I, you know, had said, as far as what we know on the long term, you know, real implications for learning, for behavior, and for the lifelong um, challenges, alcohol is the drug that we know, uh, you know, most definitively will have the, you know, greatest chance of causing those effects. Yeah. And as a hopeful adoptive parent, you may be thinking, okay, these are in maybe individual okay, maybe they use uh, tobacco or maybe they use alcohol, but how likely it is that maybe they, if they admit to some substance use, maybe they have multiple substance use. And is that likely? And if so, does that, what does that mean for the baby's health risk? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. It really is true that um, there's a lot of co-occurring use, right? So if you have a mom who talks about, you know, hey, I, you know, will have a cigarette, you know, every once in a while. Well, you know, does that mean that, you know, you're having that cigarette when you're having a beer, but you don't want to tell me about the beer part, you know, because right. that you've heard a message, you know, that tells you that that, you know, wouldn't be an acceptable thing to, you know, to do during pregnancy. And a lot of times, particularly for women who um, face addiction, 
they, the substance abuse treatment field will focus more on what is your drug of choice, right? So you might come in, you know, to treatment or you might, um, you know, be identified as having a substance use disorder related to one drug, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that that's the only drug um, that was used. So I definitely think if, you know, you have information about, a, you know, one particular drug exposure that there's a, a high probability that there was another drug used. And many times um, we tend as a culture to focus on the illegal drugs and we bypass that, uh, you know, getting that alcohol history. So like you had said, Tim, you know, we might not even know if there was alcohol exposure, but um, it definitely would send up kind of a red flag, you know, feeling of, okay, did, you know, if I, if I know that there's some illegal drug use of some sort, then is there a higher probability of alcohol use? And oftentimes the answer to that is yes. Sad, but true. And, uh, hard to even more difficult to understand what kind of substance use is there and what what exactly does that mean and i guess that leads to the next question really is just how much is too much right how much say a expectant mom has some alcohol admits to some alcohol use how much is too much or how much use by an expectant mom will affect the baby or is it just any use will affect the baby yeah, that's another really great question. Um, and, you know, the the truth is we don't know. And that's hard. Um, but there's so many factors that go into the results from prenatal alcohol exposure that there's just no consensus on what is safe. And so the Surgeon General of the United States says that the only safe thing to do is not to drink any alcohol during pregnancy. That's the only way we can say there will be no effects, right, is, is if there's no exposure. But uh, that's, you know, not a, something that, you know, everybody realizes. Um, or like I had mentioned, you know, it might be that the exposure is happening before a woman recognizes that she is pregnant. And so then how do you assess, you know, the likelihood of, of the effects of those, you know, drinks that were in the baby system before birth. And so I can tell you that there's a lot of research around the effects of binge drinking um, and how it relates to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So if you have a woman who, you know, drinks, you know, a very low level amount of alcohol during pregnancy and doesn't have any binge drinking episodes, that is, you know, often a lower risk situation than a woman who only drinks on a couple of occasions during pregnancy, but they're binge drinking episodes. And what's defined as binge drinking for a woman is actually only four standard drinks on one occasion, which really is a lot less alcohol than people might realize. Um, So if you have binge drinking um, exposure, it definitely increases the chance of the uh, baby being affected by that. And then there's a whole host of other things that kind of play into the likelihood um, of seeing a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And those are things like the nutrition that the mom is getting during pregnancy, her access to prenatal care, how much stress she's under during pregnancy, um, what her age is. Actually, older women um, tend to, the incidence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is higher in women who are older than younger. And so there's just a lot of 
variables. So you'll have, you know, some women, you might have listeners who are saying, you know, my best friend drank off and on, you know, during her pregnancy and I know her kids and they're great. And, you know, we've never heard, you know, of any struggles they've had. And that is possible. But then, you know, on the other hand, you know, there are kids who are significantly affected and it seems like it was a low level um, of exposure. So unfortunately, there's not a clear answer for that. But, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, the genetics of the baby, the genetics of the mom, all of that play into um, how likely there are to be effects from alcohol exposure. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And as a hopeful adoptive parent, when you're considering an adoption situation or considering the risks, I guess, of having a baby that's had exposure, you want to just know what are the most profound effects of it so you can know what to prepare yourself for maybe like the worst case and if you know the best case is there's no effect and the worst case is whatever it is it probably would be somewhere in between but you you have to i guess go into in a situation preparing yourself for the worst and can you accept the worst would you agree with that or yeah, I, you know, I think it's a really important thing to consider. Um, just, you know, can we, because nobody will be able to tell us for sure, yeah. you know, that this child will be affected and in what way or that the child won't be affected. I think families really have to evaluate, you know, how comfortable they are with understanding that risk. And I think, you know, in the adoption community and kind of, you know, on the professional side, we're always trying to communicate, you know, that, that there's a level of risk and there are all kinds of unknowns um, and that alcohol exposure or drug exposure um, is one of those that, you know, we're going to do the best that we can to, to get information. Um, but, you know, we can't guarantee that, uh, that an expected mom is going to be forthcoming with that information. There is protection, you know, as far as people's um, substance abuse uh, treatment history goes that, you know, we may not get access to that. And so I think anyone, whether they're intentionally saying we're comfortable adopting a child who's got prenatal exposure or not, I think everyone just needs to prepare for the fact that this could be a possibility that we might have a child who was exposed to alcohol or drugs before um, they were born. And so, you know, there has to be some level of, you know, just preparation around that. Well, let's focus in a little bit on the prenatal alcohol exposure. That's your, your background and you're, you have a lot of experience with that. Let's, uh, let's talk about what are the, some of the symptoms uh, of, a, of a child that's diagnosed with that? Maybe, and it probably depends on the age of the child as well. Maybe you can walk us through that a little bit, what, what some of the symptoms are. Yeah, so with a diagnosis of a condition that's on the fetal alcohol spectrum, there are, so FASD is, you know, one of the things that you'll hear, right? Um, and it's, so it's fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. That by itself isn't a diagnosis, but what it includes are categories under that spectrum that can be diagnosed. And so and the most well-known would be fetal alcohol syndrome. And with fetal alcohol syndrome, there's uh, four specific things that are looked for to do it, you know, to diagnose the full syndrome. So the first one would be that there was alcohol exposure prenatally. The next one would be looking at 
growth problems. So children with fetal alcohol syndrome tend to be or would be um, to get a diagnosis under the 10th percentile for their height and their weight at some point um, in their life. There's specific facial features that are part of the syndrome. Um, those are having small eyes, having a thin upper lip, and kind of having this smooth area between your nose and your upper lip. And then the last area is damage to the brain. And so central nervous system damage. And when you have all four of those areas being affected, then you would get a diagnosis of full fetal alcohol syndrome. But the vast majority of children who are exposed to alcohol before they're born, they fall on another, kind of under another area in that spectrum. Some very subtly affected, they don't have the facial features, they don't have the growth problems. But what's consistent is the effects on the brain um, and the way that, you know, the effects on the brain show up, like you had said are different depending on age. And so with a newborn, you'd see, you know, different signs um, than you would with a child who's older. Would it be helpful if I talked a little bit about what you might see in babies or? um, Yeah, let's please. Yeah. So with infants, sometimes the possibility of fetal alcohol syndrome or spectrum disorder is completely missed. They seem like maybe they're small babies, but, you know, there's not a lot of other um, clues to pick up on. Now, some children, um, as infants, you'll be able to pick up on more subtle cues. One of the big ones is what researchers and the doctors will call failure to habituate. So that just means babies can't block things out of their environment. So one of the tests that um, is done for research purposes is just to take a, a little light and shine it in a baby's eye. And babies who are sleeping will, you know, kind of stir um, and respond to the light. And then as the researcher would, you know, keep kind of shining that light and, you know, repeating that stimulation, typically developing babies block it out. They fall back to sleep. The you know, they know that their brain tells them this is not important. Sleep is what I need right now, not, you know, paying attention to that light. But babies with fetal alcohol often can't habituate. They can't block that out. And so they just continue to respond. Another, like, a sign um, for infants would be a baby who just doesn't get into a routine. And we all wish as new parents, right? Like, please, could you just sleep through the night? But, you know, these are, are babies that are struggling, you know, to get into that cycle of sleeping and feeding and, you know, being alert. And, you know, so it just seems irregular um, for a much longer period of time than a typically developing baby. Another sign might be a baby who just sleeps too much, right? Like it's great when babies are sleeping and, you know, gives you, you know, a chance to kind of catch your breath and and do what you need to do, um, get your own rest. Those are really important. But if you have an infant who just seems to be sleeping way more than you would expect, it might be a sign that that baby is responding. Their central nervous system is overwhelmed. And so to respond and kind of shut down and sleep um, actually, you know, is just that indication that their nervous system might be overwhelmed. And so that can be something seen um, in infants with prenatal exposure. And then another big, you know, kind of early childhood area would be developmental delays. So a baby who's, you know, slow to sit up, who is behind um, in, you know, physical development and some of the, you know, cognitive kinds of things. So learning to make sounds and being able to, um, respond um, on, you know, kind of the typical developmental scale. Many uh, children with prenatal exposure, you know, you can see early developmental delays. One of the ones that's a little bit fun in in a way um, is uh, uh, it's not, it's 
common for children with fetal alcohol um, exposure to be to experience some speech delays. And so early on, parents are stressed and you know seeking services and support to help their children develop language skills. But what's common for many of those children um, with FASDs is as they grow up, their speech becomes extraordinary, and they are able to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And it's one of those you know things where there's actually later they might be able to have really good expressive skills, but their receptive language, their understanding of what's being said is still delayed. But they speak so well and parents will say to me like, man, you know, I was so worried when he was little about his speech, but now I just wish, you know, we'd get a break because there's so much talking going on. So the the effects that are, you know, are there um, for young children, they look different as they they get older. Um, But there's, you know, there are things that can be picked up on early, but oftentimes it's not until a child gets into grade school or even middle school that sometimes the problems become significant enough that a family would seek a diagnosis. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, you you wonder how far out the symptoms will stretch and how long it will take them to get past it or will they get past it? So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of research. I've done some of that uh, in looking of when the symptoms occur and and at what stage of their development. And another thing I discovered when I was doing some research is the baby's environment and the care that they get and the impact that has on their ability to get past some of the symptoms or deal with some of the symptoms that they had at prenatal exposure. Can you talk about that? Like what, what effect does the baby's environment have? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge. So the good news is, is that, so kind of to get back to, you know, something you alluded to about, you know, how long are these effects there? Well, for a child who has a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum, just, you know, diagnosis on the spectrum, right? Fetal alcohol syndrome or one of the other conditions, that's lifelong. That's not going to go away because it's a permanent damage that's been done to the brain. But what can be improved or avoided are some of these things that are called kind of secondary disabilities. So the primary disability, the the damage that's done to the brain and the effects that happen to learning, to impulse control, to, you know, other kinds of behaviors, those are going to be there um, throughout their lifespan. But the other things that sometimes if you go online and you're looking, you know, you can get scared off, you know, in reading stories and hearing things from, you know, people who have a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and they're in trouble with the law. They're, you know, aggressive um, towards another, you know, towards other individuals. They experience, you know, impulsive sexual related, you know, behaviors. There are, there are stories out there that you will see um, that are connected to fetal alcohol and some of those kinds of things that are that are frankly, you know, scary to any parent. But I want what I want people to know um, is that many of those kinds of things can be avoided with a early diagnosis, with a family support system that understands this child, that is willing and able to put protection in place to kind of keep their child uh, from having some of the same risks that kids who don't get an early diagnosis or children who experience postnatal trauma, you know, some of those difficulties when you combine multiple risk factors like children who've been abused and neglected, children who haven't had access to support and services, that's when, you know, some of those really 
complex and, and, you know, kind of the scary stories, many of those come um, as a result of that combination of, um, of trauma and stress and, you know, um, lack of protection. So I do want families to know, although the, the, primary disability related to the effects of alcohol on the brain can't be changed just because of environment. There's a lot that can happen to protect children and to keep them um, from experiencing some of those real other kind of compounding effects. Yeah, it would be interesting if there was ever a study done on children that have had prenatal exposure to whatever, but then were adopted into a, a family that Obviously, their environment and their care would be dramatically different than if that baby was left in the environment of the drug addicted or alcohol addicted family. Right. You know, I think I wonder if some of those studies are done and the effects on those children are seen based on the environment that they stayed in rather than getting them out of adoptive family. Right. Yeah. So there is some, you know, the complicated thing with research is, you know, with human subject research, you can't control things, right? So, you know, to be able to say, oh, this is just because of the alcohol exposure, you know, you you know, it's really hard um, in human research, you know, to be able to take that out. But way back in the um, mid 90s, there was actually a study that was done um, by a researcher whose name is Anne Streisguth. And she looked at this, you know, primary and secondary disability categories that I'm talking about now. And she was able to identify what some of those protective factors were. And those included things like, you know, the things that I was mentioning of early diagnosis, eligible for um, support services, being in a safe and stable nurturing home environment, um, being protected from violence. So that, you know, that's been done for quite some time. And so we definitely know um, that there are things that, you know, being in an adoptive placement, um, particularly, you know, from birth can really make a difference for the life and the success um, that people with fetal alcohol can have. Absolutely. Good. Well, how can uh, a family, so say they're faced with a decision about an adoption situation that involves prenatal exposure, how can they best prepare themselves uh, for trying to make that decision on that particular situation? Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into that um, as far as, you know, for someone to evaluate, for a couple to evaluate, you know, what what is our comfort with this risk? And like I said, I believe that it's a risk that, you know, any pre-adoptive parent um, would want to realize and recognize, you know, this may be the, the, you know, this may be a risk whether it's identified or not. But I think, you know, if you're going into a situation where you know that there's exposure, then there's definitely some steps that you want to take um, to really evaluate that well. And, you know, like what we're doing right now, I think the first step is, you know, to be educated, to start to get specific training around fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Look for articles if you know that there was drug exposure as well. Um, Look for research articles that can tell you about a specific kind of drug. You definitely want to look for, you know, kind of those high quality sources for information. So things like the American Academy of Pediatrics, they have a lot of reports um, around the effects of alcohol and drug use, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, again, you know, a very high quality research basis to get your information from. So, you know, you want to you wanna look for credible sources and get educated. And then I think, you know, parents have to really evaluate can they do this um, together as a team, right? So if you're, uh, you know, if you're a married couple, you want to start to get familiar with some of the 
alternative <laughs> parenting um, strategies that you want to use for a child with prenatal alcohol exposure. So these kiddos tend to not respond real well to traditional parenting. So thinking love and logic kinds of things of, you know, if I tell them to do this and I give them a consequence, they're, you know, going to remember and next time they're not going to do that. Well, with a child with an FASD, they've got problems with memory. They have a lack of impulse control. They have learning um, challenges, many of them. And so those kinds of techniques aren't going to work for a child with, uh, with an FASD. So parents Parents want to get familiar with what some of the um, strategies are that they would use and really talk about, you know, hey, can we agree to this? Because sometimes, you know, a couple, you've got one person who's very traditional and very, you know, um, committed to an idea of, you know, parenting through consequence. And that just, you know, would be a a real stress point um, for parents raising a child with an FASD. So I would say, talk about it. Are you aligned? Are you willing to, you know, kind of learn the new stuff together? You want to look at your support network and figure out, hey, you know what, like if you're a single parent planning to adopt or if you're a married couple or, you know, a co-parenting couple, you are going to need some other people in your lives uh, to add to your network of support because this is is a big commitment um, and takes a lot of time. So having people who are willing to, you know, kind of drop meals off the first week that the baby's home is awesome, but it's not going to cut it when <laughs> you have a child who, you know, has a higher need for supervision um, than, you know, than a typically developing child would. And so you've got to, you know, try to figure out, you know, who can be in your support network long term and also people who you can go to for different things. Um, because I think sometimes, you know, we kind of expect and it's it's really common to kind of think like, you know, grandparents, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a, you know, grandparent living close to you that, oh, okay, you know, I'll just ask my mom to be, you know, to do this and that. And, you know, I know right. I can count on her, but that won't be enough. So really trying to figure out who else you can bring in um, to your network of support. And parents raising children with FASDs, many of them benefit greatly from um, participating in an FASD support group. There are a lot of them out there, uh, many that are in person, but also a huge online community um, of parents who can, you know, sometimes you don't want to tell grandma <laughs> um, everything because then she might start looking, you know, at your child and saying, oh, like I can't babysit like that, you know. Sounds really intimidating where it's like, I just need somebody for 30 minutes to, you know, so I can run to the grocery store, right? So you don't necessarily want to burn out your family members kind of being everything for you. So trying to find some other people that you can go to and kind of, you know, share um, different, uh, different challenges that you're facing, that is really important. Um, so... I'm sorry, we were talking about how you decide if this is right for you. Do you have a good support network? Are you willing to parent on the same page? And then I would say another really key, a couple of key, you know, things to continue to consider are, can you be a strong advocate? Are you comfortable not taking no from different service providers because there are people who you will face and people who you will meet who will tell you, oh, I'm sorry, your child doesn't, you know, fit our program. We can't help. Like, we, you know, he's not eligible for this service. And parents need to know that sometimes they can't take no. They've got to be advocates. They've got to challenge um, those systems and say, yeah, you know, here's why he's eligible. Even though, so the the diagnosis of fetal alcohol at this point um, in the U.S doesn't automatically open a lot of doors for service. Um, So kids kind of have to fall into other categories to say from the school system or from the developmental disabilities community or from um, 
just the other places that you would go to say, you know, my child needs um, some extra support, you might get turned away at first. And so you have to be committed to being a strong advocate. Um, That would be another thing to really think through. And then finally, I would just say, you know, it's kind of like you had mentioned already, Tim, of, you know, imagining the worst case, right? So you, you, we won't know um, for a really long time what effects might happen from prenatal alcohol exposure. So I would say parents should really contemplate if my child cannot live independently or if what independent living looks like for this child is not what I expect. And many times we don't, you know, consciously think about it, but I think, you know, often we assume our children will grow up, they will go to college or they will get some kind of job where they can, you know, support themselves independently. Our wish is that they, you know, fall in love and that they have a person in their life who, you know, is there for them um, as an adult that they can, you know, kind of have those things in their future. And that's not always the situation for people with FASDs. Many of them um, have a lot of support as adults um, in order to have some of that independence. And so uh, it is something that I think people should, you know, consider is what if independent living looks different for this child? Yeah, that is interesting to, to think about. Yep. There, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot out there. You mentioned a lot of support systems. So I appreciate that where families can go to try to understand what's available for them and their children. But what stories could you share about some families maybe who have adopted already a baby that has had some prenatal exposure um, or dealt with fetal alcohol syndrome, something like that? Do you have any stories you could share from families who have done that? Yeah, I I have, as I mentioned, you know, worked with families for many years um, who are raising children with FASDs and their children are are unique and, uh, you know, individual as far as, you know, their, um, their strengths and their challenges and, and different things um, that they've, you know, encountered in life. But I would say, you know, a couple of special things that come to mind um, are a family who um, had a baby placed with them at birth uh, because she um, was placed um, through the foster care system because when she was born, they had um, reason to suspect that her mom had used alcohol heavily during pregnancy. They did a brain scan um, for her when she was born, and they saw that she was missing some structures in her brain, one um, being called the corpus callosum, which is what connects left and right hemisphere of the brain together and tends to be um, affected by alcohol quite a bit. So she was missing her corpus callosum, and the hospital you know, staff was very concerned about having her go to her biological family, so she was placed right into a foster family's um, care. That family, eventually, um, they were not able to be, you know, she was not able to be reunited with her birth family, um, so her foster parents adopted her. And they adopted her knowing, you know, she may have really significant, profound, you know, effects lifelong um, from the amount of damage that was done through um, that alcohol exposure, but they were committed to her um, and they were willing to, you know, do everything to to you know, to protect her and love her. And she's doing really well. One of the cool things that I think they did for her, um, they knew, right, from birth that uh, she was affected. And so they were advocating for her, you know, from very early on. And she was set up, um, a different group of kids that came in for afternoon kindergarten. 
And her parents advocated and said, you know what would really be helpful for her would be to go to both kindergartens, um, to go to AM and PM. And so that's what she did. And she got a lot of repetition by, you know, being there um, and hearing the information twice and practicing the skills, you know, two times a day instead of, you know, kind of being expected to, to pick up all the learning. And, you know, things that happen in kindergarten now are, you know, a lot different than when I was little. So kids are expected to know a lot and do a lot. And so for her, you know, having parents that advocated um, that she get that, you know, extra support, that was, you know, one of the things that they feel was really helpful to her. Another person that I'm thinking about, she was a Bethany baby. Um, she was adopted in New Jersey um, in the 1980s. And she was a pretty typically developing child. Um, she had some things that people would have told you were kind of quirky and just, you know, some things that made her seem a little bit different, but she was in school. She left home. She went to college. She got married. She had children. And yet 30 years into her adult life, um, her mom was reading a magazine that, that Bethany publishes called Lifelines. And we had an article um, in the magazine about an, a man who was living with fetal alcohol and talking about what that was like for him. And her mom read the story and said, oh my goodness, like, I think that this might be what was affecting, you know, what has been affecting my daughter. And so they went and she was in her thirties and went to an FASD diagnostic clinic and she got a diagnosis. Oh. Um, and she said, like, it was just amazing to her to understand that there was a reason mm -hmm. for some of those quirky things that had always been, you know, part of her life. And she's just become a huge advocate in the FASD community of sharing her story of how helping other people recognize and pick up on it and kind of see that, you know, she's somebody that you would say, you know, is, is, a, you know, typical success, right? You know, being married, college, kids, you know, the whole um, kind of, you know, things that we wish for, but yet she lived with, you know, with that disability. Um, and, uh, you know, it just kind of shows um, that there's a range of outcomes. So I don't want people to feel like, you know, every child who's affected can't have, um, you know, what we think of as typical success. But yeah, there's just, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot we could keep talking, but I, you know, probably <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot <laughs> need more to let stories. you uh, wrap things up pretty no, soon. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I know you have a lot more stories and I'm sure uh, you could share a lot. I appreciate all you've shared so far. I mean, you've definitely opened our eyes uh, and I think really given us some real things to think about, but also given us some hope that, Hey, not just because there's some exposure or even a lot of exposure doesn't mean you can't deal with it doesn't mean you can't uh, accept the situation but you have to do what's right for you like you said before you and your and your spouse or your significant other um i would like you to end though with giving us some uh, books or other resources you've mentioned some here throughout the interview and i appreciate that uh, could you share a few more maybe of places that folks could go uh that you find uh, credible and and like you said uh quality resources uh for prenatal exposure yeah, there are a lot and it's growing, the amount of resources. Um, and one of the things that I like to tell pre-adoptive parents who I get to speak with is that I started doing this work about 20 years ago. And when I did, there was not a lot, you know, as much out there um, as there is now. And that's true not only for, for research, for recognition and understanding, but for services, uh, for places that you can go where you can say, my child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and people are going to go, oh, 
oh yeah, like, you know, I can help. Um, I understand that there is way more of that now than there was 20 years ago. And so I would tell people, you know, who are thinking about this as well, if you're planning to adopt a baby in, you know, 2017, 2018, that 20 years from now, the amount of resources and the amount of understanding and the amount of research that's going to be there is going to be better, right? There's going to be more. So I would, you know, put that out as a you know, a message of hope as well. But as far as where I would recommend people look right now, in addition to the ones that I mentioned before, I would add the National Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, which stands, uh, which is called NOFAS, so N-O-F-A-S, um, and their website is nofas.org. They have a resource directory that is a map of the United States, and you can click on that map. And, you know, so if you're in California, if you're in Iowa or wherever you might be, you can find resources um, that are in your state regarding fetal alcohol syndrome and spectrum disorder. So that's a great starting place. And then there's also, um, this, in many states, have a local chapter, right? So that's the national organization. Um, and they have good fact sheets and information um, on their website. But there's also one of the state affiliates um, based in Minnesota is called MOFAS, so Minnesota Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome. And they're one of the leading groups um, in the United States as far as um, help for families. And so I would highly recommend um, that people take a look at the MOFAS website, Minnesota Organization. Um, because they have a lot of webinars on demand. So you can go and, you know, hear um, training uh, for free on uh, just a huge variety of different topics. Um, and they're very family focused. And so even though they're based in Minnesota and you live somewhere totally um, different, I would still recommend taking a look at, um, at the resources that they have. And then just a couple of other researchers and, um, and people who are not, not so much researchers, but practitioners, right? The people who get it. Two names that I would also recommend would be Deb Evenson, um, and she is based in Alaska, um, and she's a huge advocate in the education community, and so as people are parenting children and they're getting into the schools, she's a great resource. And then another person um, to look at um, is Diane Melbin. M-A-L-B-I-N, and she's written a, just a booklet um, uh, called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. And it's um, just a really good perspective on kind of some of those things I talked about, right? Like traditional parenting doesn't work. Um, she offers a lot of insight on how to do things from a different perspective. And in addition to that booklet, she's got, you know, just a wealth of information and knowledge. And so if you Google those people's names, Diane Melvin or Deb Evenson, you're going to find a lot of really good quality um, resources through that. Well, thank you so much for all that. That's awesome. I don't think, if you're listening to this, don't think you have to write all that down. <laughs> you can go to uh, the show notes for this, uh, which I'll share with you in a little bit here. The, the show notes for this episode will have all these links and all these books and uh, everything that we're talking about, including how to contact Sarah. If you want to give us your contact information, how we can get a hold of you. Yeah, I would be glad to. And Tim, if you don't mind, there's just one more thing that sure. was like, oh, I was hoping to say. Yes, please go ahead. <laughs> okay. One more tip um, that I just want to make sure everyone hears is that having an open adoption relationship and obviously being, you know, open adoption um, podcast, I, I want families to realize that they can go back um, to birth parents later and get more information. So I know families who have done this, who have, you know, been in contact with child's birth parent and established 
relationships, have built trust, have, you know, mutual respect for one another. Um, and through that have been able to explore alcohol exposure and get the documentation that they've needed in order to get an official diagnosis for their child. So being able to, you know, say, okay, maybe we didn't know that much um, from, you know, the prenatal history, but over time, as you've established that rapport and trust, um, you can go back to birth parents and talk about, you know, hey, I know you would have never done anything intentionally to try to hurt, you know, this, this child, but there's science and there's, you know, the information that doctors are looking for that have to do with, you know, drinking during pregnancy. Is it possible before you knew that you were, you know, pregnant that you might have had alcohol to drink and, you know, um, just discussions like that, they, they can come back and, you know, reflect on that together and get some of that information. So I just encourage um, people who are entering into open adoption relationships to recognize that, you know, that birth parents aren't out there intentionally trying to drink and harm, you know, children that, you know, sometimes it is a matter of not knowing or getting bad information from, you know, a provider who didn't recognize a substance use issue that was going on and saying, oh, sure, you know, you can have a little bit to drink during the pregnancy. That'll be fine. So I just want people to know that. So it's not a closed door. It's not only one time, you know, you'll ever get a chance to get this information. Absolutely. So, thank you for letting me uh, yeah, you know, slip that in. That's a great tip. Thank um, and you so for as far as contacting me, um, I would recommend using Bethany's Post-Adoption Contact Center. Um, it's a great way to get uh, a hold of, uh, of me and some other people um, who I work with who are incredible and, and have a lot of great uh, information to share post-adoption. And so I would uh, just direct people towards to Bethany.org and then our Post-Adoption Contact Center. So it would be P-A-C-C, Bethany.org slash P-A-C-C. Very, very good. I appreciate all your time today, and clearly you are in your element and discussing this. And I, the experience you've had uh, is invaluable to share with us. So I really appreciate all you've uh, shared with us today. It's awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you for coming on the show. You are very welcome. I was glad to be able to do it. Thank you for that opportunity. All right. Thanks, Sarah. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. All right. Awesome interview with Sarah from Bethany Christian Services. I love this episode. So much to talk about. It went so fast for me. I hope it did for you. I hope you learned a lot and don't have to remember everything we talked about today or the resources and books and everything we talked about because it's all going to be at infantadoptionguide.com forward slash 52 in the show notes. So you're going to get everything that we talked about today just by going over to the show notes there and there'll be links there for you so you don't have to go and out and do your own research some of the stuff is going to be right there for you to go and click on and, and learn about. So thank you so much for Sarah for joining us today. And thank you for joining us today. If you would like to get some more information about adoption, I have some free ebooks for you. InfantAdoptionGuide.com forward slash welcome. Just to sign up there and uh, you'll get those free ebooks and even more information from me along the way. So thanks for listening. Until next time, you are in my prayers as you go on the journey to build your family through infant adoption. God bless you. Thanks for listening to my dad.